Welcome to Contain This. I'm Dr Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of country throughout Australia and our region. We recognise the continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Here at the Global Health Division at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, we launched a new learning series this year and I'm pleased to bring you the second of two insights from our latest seminar on climate change, health and international development. Our first climate and health episode featured Professor Catherine Bowen from the University of Melbourne. You can catch up with that in our feed. Today we will hear from Paul Mitchell, the Principal Climate Change Advisor for the international NGO Save the Children. He will illustrate the financing and implementation challenges with examples from across his organisation's emerging climate project portfolio. Paul's slides will be available in the show notes. Enjoy the presentation. Hi, I'm Paul. I work for Save the Children. I have the, the enviable role of leading Save the Children's climate work globally, um, particularly our engagement with global climate finance mechanisms. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're doing in this space and give you a couple of examples, one uh, at either end of the scale. So one at kind of the, the micro side uh, of integration and one at the macro side of, of grabbing hold of some of this amorphous 2% of climate finance and dragging it into doing really interesting health stuff um, in various places. But I guess first, that button works, awesome. People often ask why say the children would have anything to do with climate change, right? Like we, we work in health, we work in education, child protection, humanitarian response, but why climate change? So half of the world's children live in places that are already climate vulnerability hotspots. And that will only grow as an overall number and as a percentage of the world's children as climate change impacts intensify over time. That um, graph that Catherine showed earlier, it's not really a graph, is it? infographic that Catherine showed earlier came from a piece of research, um, at least in part, that was done by a technical university in Brussels in collaboration with Save the Children. And off the back of that, we released an advocacy report called Born into the Climate Crisis. And what we looked at was the difference in lifetime exposure, number of events that a child born in 2020 would experience versus their grandparent born in, in say, 1960. And it is incredibly stark. These are the global averages you can see up there. So double the amount of wildfires on average globally, right up to seven times the number of heat waves. So not just seven heat waves, seven times however many their grandparents may have had. And when you get to the country level, it's even more stark. A place like Afghanistan, it's like 15 times the number of heat waves that their grandparents would have experienced in their lifetimes. So it's really stark. And so when people say, why, so the children of climate change, I say, what else would we do, right? Like there is nothing else that we would do. We cannot achieve a world that is safe for children if we do not address the impacts of climate change. So we have a, a global, just really quickly, a global strategy on climate change. There are kind of four things that we do institutionally as an organisation, in case you haven't heard of us. We've been around for like 110 years, um, so we, we've been doing this stuff for a while. Um, but health, education, effectively, child protection, and then this amorphous kind of safety nets, resilient families thing, which looks at social protection measures, which have a health impact, obviously, and a range of other issues. Um, and then, of course, humanitarian response, which kind of sits over the, the side. Um, and the strategy helps to kind of guide our investments as an institution into various components of these sectors and where we can kind of gain the most impact from a climate perspective. Um, don't even bother with this one, but 
the, the word that's been bandied around most, phrase that's been bandied around most today has been systems approach, right? Catherine talked about it, talked about it from apt. Everyone's been talking about a systems approach, and it's really critically important. And I was going to say before everybody else did, save the children takes a system approach for reducing climate. And because of course we do, right? But it's really complicated taking a systems approach. And when we talk about climate finance, which I will in a little bit, it's really hard for climate finance to take a systems approach. It's really good at directing money at a very specific problem to fix. It's really bad at directing money to a systemic problem. Okay, so I wanted to give you two examples um, of the kinds of stuff that we're doing. So the first one is in PNG, and this is part of the ANCP program, the Australian NGO Cooperation Program, um, which is a, a flexible funding mechanism that the Australian Aid Program provides to NGOs um, that are Australian-based and actually accredited to do stuff that's in, aligned in some way with the, the, the overall country strategies. Um, so in PNG, we have a health program, and this is doing a range of different things, health outreach, vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one thing it is doing is, is helping the health centres in remote and rural areas become more resilient to the impacts of climate change, and in fact, actually just to do what they should be doing anyway by increasing their access to energy. Now, you all know PNG to varying degrees. You know that there is no way on earth the entire country will ever be grid connected. Right? It just isn't going to be possible. The amount of money you would spend doing it and the amount of disruption and environmental destruction you would cause doing it isn't really worth the, 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 the benefits of doing it, particularly when we can leapfrog the old technologies and we can have distributed off-grid systems. So um, uh, this program worked in 32 rural health centres and it provided them with solar panels and generators and, and battery systems. And so what that has enabled um, is immunisation services, which previously couldn't be delivered because there was no cold chain, no refrigeration available, right? Or no reliable refrigeration. 24-hour um, services because your panels charge your battery, your battery runs your light at night. So now if a, a woman is inconveniently giving birth after dark, that can be provided at the local health centre, right? Whereas before, I don't know what you did, but you couldn't do it, so you just... Cross your legs and hope. I, I don't know, right? But significant impact on people's lives right there. Um, there are some challenges, though, and lessons that we've learned through the, the implementation of this project. It's really important to take a local scale level assessment, right? So we can't just say, okay, all of these 32 health centres will get 15 solar panels and a battery this size. What if the roof isn't big enough to fit 15 solar panels, right? What if it's not strong enough? Do we have to ground mount them? Where do we put them? Where can the batteries go that's a safe place that's not exposed to the elements if it's that kind of battery? So making sure the technology is fit for purpose to the location and not just to PNG, but to each individual health centre is critically important. Um, making sure that we're bringing along officials with us, officials and I would add here, and communities, because if you don't know what's going on, um, you have no ownership of it, right? So solar panels are pretty robust. They don't need a lot of maintenance, but they do need a little bit. If it's a drought and it's dusty, then the solar panels aren't going to produce as much energy as they would if they were clean. If it's raining as it is normally, then that's fine. But otherwise, you might need to clean them and have a, an you know, operations and, and maintenance regime. Same thing with your batteries. Someone needs to be around and understand what's going on in order to make sure that you don't end up with um, you know, broken solar panels being used as coffee tables or something like that, right? It's great recycling, but not very helpful for the purpose that they were designed. Um, Making sure that you can get what you need to the place where it needs to be in the time that it needs to be there. And factoring 
the cost plus, plus, plus into that is really important. And then working with the program donors to make sure they understand that, yes, it's not the same cost putting a solar panel on a clinic near Port Moresby versus putting a solar panel on a clinic in East Bougainville, right? Like, it's completely different cost, and you need to kind of understand that from a donor perspective, and we need to be able to explain that as a, as a program. Okay, so that's that one. That's the micro scale. At the other end of the scale, um, this is a bit of an essay, so please don't read it. Um, Save the Children is accredited to an institution called the Green Climate Fund, which is the world's largest climate finance mechanism. It is, um, it's the financing arm of the Paris Agreement, which I assume most of you have heard of. Um, it is, uh, it's a big, complicated, multilateral mechanism. Now, health is an issue that the Green Climate Fund is interested in. It has been in operation since 2016. It has not funded a single health-focused project in that entire time. It's not contributing to the 2% that Catherine mentioned of global climate finance that is focused on health at all, zero, zilch. So one of the things that we are trying to do as, a, as an entity is bring forward health-focused projects. Um, and it's more challenging than you might think because it's not straightforward. Funds like the Green Climate Fund and other global climate finance mechanisms like to see a really straight line. So it's getting hotter, there's a drought, crops are failing, let's do climate resilient crops. Okay. It's getting hotter, people are getting sick, so we do health system strengthening? I don't know, right? It looks like development. So it's much more difficult to argue that case. Um, so what we are doing, uh, I'll give you an example of Lao, but we're building large-scale climate and health projects uh, across the region uh, and beyond. So one in Laos, one in Indonesia, one in Malawi, one in Senegal, building off the back of some not health-focused work that we're implementing currently in Vanuatu. So right now we're uh, implementing the world's largest locally-led adaptation project um, that's ever been done anywhere uh, in Vanuatu, about a $35 million project. Um, it's it will reach 50% of the rural and remote populations of Vanuatu, and it includes a lot of work around food security and nutrition. But it's not a health-focused program, okay? But it's a big investment in health. So this one in Laos will be the first one that is, in fact, a health-focused project. Um, what it's doing, or what it will do, really is four things, and they all make perfect sense. And if you took climate out of it, it would still all make perfect sense. So it's strengthening the governance of the health system, right? From a climate perspective, it's ensuring that health information systems and climate information systems and early warning systems talk to each other, which is a total no-brainer, but it really isn't happening very well in many places at all. And it's something you would want to do anyway, even in a world without climate change, you kind of want to know if a flood is coming and the impacts it might have so that you can prep your health system to respond. Um, it's then this kind of amorphous outcome three wording really is around increasing the resilience of infrastructure in remote rural locations in Laos to withstand the impacts of climate change. Now that's got a wash focus, it's making sure that um, that health centres that need it are protected from floods or from extreme rainfall, that they continue to operate in an effective and efficient manner during climate emergencies or climate-related extreme weather events, but also during other times where the, the it may be a drought, right? So you want to make sure you've got sufficient water. So that climate responsiveness within infrastructure and then things like procurement systems, right? Making sure that they're also working in line with the climate. Can you get the things you need to the place they need to be in the time that they need to be there 
when you've got the Mekong flooding or you've got extreme rainfall or a dam bursting or whatever it might be. And then the last one then is taking all of this stuff and working at a community level. So there's been some talk earlier around health NAPs or health national adaptation plans and they're fantastic where they exist but it doesn't mean anything at a community level. So taking that right down to the community level and doing health adaptation planning and then implementing or supporting the implementation of those plans. So that might mean mosquito nets, it might mean um, better wash at a community level, it might mean um, enhanced early warning systems, whatever it is, the project will then implement priority actions underneath that and what it can't do, the community will have a prioritised actionable plan that it can take to the next NGO that want to see or, or a government round of funding or whatever it might be and say, you know what? This is what we really need to do, and then it can be action from there. So last things I wanted to talk about were some of the barriers to doing this stuff. This is a bit beyond the brief, sorry. Um, and then some potential solutions, and, and then a sneaky bit at the end where maybe DFAT can play a role. So one of the challenges with increasing the amount of climate in health and health in climate is that it's often not even on the agenda, right? And health is in there. It's, it's a word on a page but there's no real action on it within the resourcing frameworks that are available. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But it's often because it's not seen as a climate-related challenge, right? You know there's a storm coming, it's gonna mess with your infrastructure, there's a climate challenge, but more mosquitoes in an area where maybe they weren't before or, the, or there weren't as many before, is it really climate change? Who knows? So, you know, there's some kind of issues there. When we do local level adaptation planning as an organisation and many other organisations face this too, health doesn't even come up. Right? You can kind of predictably count, without even going into a community, the kinds of things that are likely to come up in those consultations. And you need to be inclusive and you need to be participatory, but we have to find a bit of a balance. Can we lead sometimes? Because often people don't know what they don't know, right? The, what is it? Is it Rumsfeld? Donald Rumsfeld? Sorry, I hate to say that word. The unknown, 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 unknowns, right? Things that you don't even know are a problem might be the biggest problem you have. And so how do we bring that into planning sessions without forcing people into, you know, into an area they may not need to go in? So that's an issue. And that kind of telegraphs into the next one, which is that often we're not speaking the same language, right? We have, you have, people have, there's one there, amazing health expertise, right? We also have amazing climate expertise, we often don't have Catherine's, right? We don't have the both, the two together, and, and we often don't have them talking to each other, and it's a really big challenge. Um, and I don't have a good solution for that other than cloning. Um, so then climate finance, which we're not really going to talk about, is really difficult to access. It took us three full years to bleed 26 million US dollars out of the Green Climate Fund for this project in Vanuatu. Three years. Now, in that time, how many significant cyclones have struck Vanuatu? And in fact, we're working in 29 area councils in Vanuatu with this project. This is a beautiful anecdote, but it's absolutely horrible. Um, the twin cyclones that happened just a few months ago were a week after we launched the project. One of our staff drew a map of where the 29 area councils are and the track of the two cyclones, and they hit almost every single one of the area councils we were working in. We were working in them for a reason, but if this project had been under implementation three years ago, those communities would necessarily have been much better positioned to cope with the impacts of that cyclone. We can't change the cyclone, we can't stop the cyclone at this point, but we can do things that help those communities be much better prepared and to bounce back much more quickly, including from a health perspective. And that work hasn't been done because we're fighting at the global level to get some of this money to do this work. Then the last one really is 
this whole where do we even start thing, right? It's such a big issue and it's hard. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you strengthen your infrastructure because that's easy. Climate change is making the river flood more often or flood at a higher rate. So let's build the thing bigger, stronger, harder, faster, right? It's easy. You can pitch it. It's understandable. But it isn't addressing the systemic issues. And that's why health is so hard. Education is even worse. It's like less than 1% of global climate finance. But that's a whole other issue. Okay, so um, somebody said that good adaptation is good development or something like that. And yes, sometimes it is, not always, but we can kind of go with that for now. Um, but we have to acknowledge that a lot of what we want to do from a climate change perspective is actually what we need to do anyway. And that's where bilateral donors come in because that's the stuff that climate finance won't touch because it's development, right? It's not adaptation. Um, Catherine was mentioning quite a lot the IPCC report, the Sixth Assessment Report. There's another really important little nugget in there um, that didn't come out of that presentation is that a key pathway to making health systems more resilient is universal access to primary healthcare. There is no climate finance mechanism in the world that's going to fund that because that's a development issue. So it's a different bit of our messed up global funding system. Um, so then I think I've already covered the point around national policy doesn't equal local action, so you actually need to be there in communities on the ground to get this stuff working. Um, then the point, I don't know why that V is in a weird flirty spot, but all climate change projects should also be health projects and vice versa, right? So our project in Vanuatu is a climate change project, but it will have really significant health impacts on those communities. We're not even counting them. It's not even in our M&E system, right? Um, but it's there and it's happening. It's really important. And vice versa. Adaptation projects have really important impacts on people's health. Um, there's that little adage, right, that people who are healthier, wealthier and better educated are inherently more adaptable to changing contexts, including climate change. So all of the work you're doing as an institution on health is actually increasing people's resilience to the impacts of climate change. So that's awesome. We just need to be doing it more intentionally because sometimes what we do might have unintended consequences that we're not aware of. You've been listening to Paul Mitchell, Principal Climate Change Advisor for Save the Children. It was the second of two insights from our latest seminar on climate change, health and international development. You can catch up with the episode featuring Professor Catherine Bowen from the University of Melbourne on our feed. Join us again next fortnight for Contain This, produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security at the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Contain This is produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. You can follow us on Twitter at CentreHealthSec.